0: I'd like to give you a very warm welcome to our evening service here. If you're joining us online or in the building, it's lovely to have you here. Um, Just a couple of announcements um, before we start. Uh, One of them is that we do have refreshments this evening, so... If you would like to stay around and catch up with people after the service, we're going to have refreshments, but it's going to be a bit different this evening. They're going to be served outside, and it's going to be mainly cold drinks, but I'm sure we can get some coffees and teas if you prefer, so just shout one of us and we can get you a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. But I'm told by um, Jane as well that there are plenty of puddings left over, so if you've got any room left in you from your tea, there's plenty of puddings afterwards. So kids, feel free to, to help yourself with as much pudding as you want, so that's a good thing, isn't it? Um, another thing is just a reminder that we have home groups this coming Thursday so I just encourage you all to um, join those groups this coming Thursday and again we said many times if you're not in one of these groups and you'd like to just speak to one of the elders or John or Mark and we just, we'd really love to see you in one of those groups and enjoy the um, fellowship with um, people as they go through those um, services. On, on a Thursday and they've been really helpful and it's a really good time to catch up with people and to pray over specific matters that matter to you so I encourage you for, for Thursday home groups. Before we start this, morning, uh, this evening I'm just going to read a verse and as, I was, it's been on my mind a lot because we've been, we've been doing the fruits of the spirit in uh, Thrive uh, just before we broke up um, for the summer holidays. And also we started a little bit talking about it as we come back. But also last Thursday we had a prayer meeting for anyone's here and we were going through the fruits of the Spirit. And it's been really sort of like um, in my mind a lot lately about, you know, if we've got these fruits, you know, what does it mean and how can it help us? And I've been actually looking at a lot of verses in the last couple of weeks that have the fruits in and what, what it says about them. And, and one, one um, verse that came out was in Romans and it says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Now, I, I looked this up mainly because it had joy and peace in it, but then hope sprang out to me, and I thought, you know, I was looking hope. Do I hope? What am I hoping for? And I looked it up in the dictionary just, just on the off chance, just to, you know, what, what, what it says, and it says, a feeling of expectation and a desire for a particular thing to happen. And it challenged me, you know, do I have the, a feeling of expectation when I hope, and is there a particular thing that I'm desiring to happen? And as a Christian, or as Christians, we should all be desiring that we have God in our lives and our desire should be to be with him at the end of our lives, isn't it? And do we we all desire that? Is that our hope? It really challenged me and um, it's been really helpful praying about it over this last week, so maybe it will be helpful to you. Well, this evening uh, Mark is going to be coming up and teaching us from the book of Judges and we have two readings this evening. Uh, The first reading is in Judges 6, and it is uh, chapter 6, and it's verses 1 to 10. Uh, You can find that on page 205, so it's Judges 6, verses 1 to 10. And um, Mark just wanted me to give a quick, uh, brief um, overview of the background of what's happening here. So I'm going to kind of just give a quick um, overview of what happens up to the point where we're going to be reading. So, so the opening of uh, Judges begins with the tribes of Israel in the territories in the Promised Land. And Joshua defeated many of the key Canaanite towns there, but there were still a lot of Canaanites that were still living in a lot of the areas and the towns. Israel failed to drive them all out, and this was a big, big problem, because one thing that God demanded was that they were driven out Because God was concerned that they would get corrupted by the way that they worshipped and get involved in a lot of the idolatry and the things that the Canaanites were doing. And God's main desire was for Israel to be a holy people and to be pure. So Israel just moved in alongside them and continued to do the things that they were doing. And this was very displeasing to God. Eventually the Israelites would see the error of their ways and repent. But as soon as they repented, the cycle happened again and they would do the same thing over and over again and God kept forgiving them. They would repent, they'd see the errors of their way but again they would mix back in, they would do the wrong things and they would get mixed up with, with the tribes around them which was what God did not want them to do. And so God raised up judges and these were people that delivered the, the, the tribe of Israel and they had a time of peace. The people were delivered but then again they would fall back into their old ways and the cycle would happen again. And we're picking up the Bible reading here where Deborah has delivered her people. There's been 40 years of peace and now we're going to see a big change again. So we're going to be picking up the reading from Judges 6 and verses 1 to 10. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years and the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel, made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no substance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey." For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for the help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel... I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. And... um, we're going to be singing our first song now then we will have our second reading and then after um, the second reading Paul Philpott is going to be coming up and he's going to be talking to us a bit about Elam and the persecuted church so we look forward to that. So we're going to be singing now Though the nations rage, kingdoms rise and fall There is still one king reigning over all When the music starts, please stand. Second reading uh, this evening. We're going to be turning just um, a page over to chapter 7 in Judges. So that can be found on page 206 if you're following in your Bibles. So Judges 7, and starting at verse 1, reading through to verse 25. So hold of this chapter. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harod, and the camp of Midian, north of them, by the hill of Morah, in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midians into their hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away, from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you. Shall go with you and anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who lapped the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, and the number of those who lapped putting their hands to their mouths was three hundred men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites to your hand and let all the others go, every man to his home." So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man, to his tent but retained the three hundred men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterwards your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian, and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell, and turned it upside down, so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, and the man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of this dream and its interpretation, he worshipped, And he returned to the camp of of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the hosts of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. And when I blow the trumpet and I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp and at the beginning of the middle march when he had just set the watch and he blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands, then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars they held in their left hands, the torches in their right hands, the trumpets to blow, and they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in place around the camp. And all the army ran. They cried out and fled. And when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Bethshittah towards Zerara, as far as the border of Abel-Maloa by Tebath. And the men of Israel were called out from Napali, and from Asher, and from Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down towards the Midianites and capture the waters against them, as far as Bethbara, and also the Jordan. So all the men from Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Bethbara, and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Orb, and Zeb they killed at the wine press of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. And we look forward to hearing what Mark has to speak to us on a little bit later. Um, and now Paul's going to come up and talk to us for a moment. Many years ago I read
1: um, the biography of Henry Martin, who died over 200 years ago and went as a missionary to what was then Persia, now Iran. He had very little fruit for his ministry. In fact, only one person was converted, as far as he knows. When I read that book, there was only a handful of Christians in Iran. Today, there are hundreds of thousands, and we're going to see how that came about on this video clip, about four and a half minutes.
2: In the early 1800s, Henry Martin translated the first New Testament into Persian. (coughs) He died alone on the 16th of October, 1812. He'd only seen one person come to Christ. In 1869, Robert Bruce left Scotland for Isfahan, Iran. He saw almost no response to the Gospel, but a letter he wrote to his supporters showed that he understood the season that he was in. He said, I am not reaping the harvest. I scarcely claim to be sowing the seed. I am hardly plowing the ground, but I am gathering out the stones. Over the next few decades several more missionaries went to Iran. By the 1950s only a few Persian-speaking Muslims had come to Christ. But more Christians around the world were praying in Tehran, my grandparents, Seth and Vartahi Yegnazar, began a prayer meeting in their home. They met every day for over four years. Their cries for revival led to outreach. God, I said to you that you will come to the church. And the message of
0: the people who come to the church that I am alive in the same way that you will come
2: Young people who came to those meetings began to courageously preach the gospel. One of them was my father, Sam, who dedicated his whole life to the Great Commission. In the 1960s, an American missionary couple, Mark and Gladys Bliss, arrived in Iran with their three young children. They traveled the country encouraging believers. Then, on October 25th, 1969, tragedy struck. They had a car accident and all three of their children were killed. As Mark and Gladys grieved, they prayed a heart-wrenching prayer of faith. I said to God, Can we plant three seeds for the sake of a harvest in Iran? In 1979, the Islamic revolution erupted across Iran. All missionaries were forced to leave and Christians faced increasing opposition. But the tiny church kept going. In 1990, my father, helped by his friend Reza Roshanzamir, founded Elam Ministries to strengthen and expand the church. However, the suffering of the church continued and by 1996, seven key church leaders had been martyred. People wondered if the church could survive. But the blood of the martyrs watered the seeds of the gospel. And from the late 1990s, house churches began to spring up all over the country. In response, the government viciously cracked down on these house churches. And they arrested hundreds of believers. I remember receiving a disturbing voicemail from my friend, Fashid Fatih telling me that he and 60 others had been caught.
3: Hi, David, I'm uh, Unfortunately, this morning, this early morning, uh, they catch all of us, actually. They are waiting for me in my house. Uh, everybody, uh, we are all in prison.
2: Despite the persecution, the Word of God has continued to spread, just like in the book of Acts. Every day, people are coming to Christ, We are in a season of harvest. This incredible story is the result of the faithful service of God's people throughout the generations. And now it's time for us to understand our season, our generation. How can we be faithful? How can we pray? How can we serve? So that the impact will be even greater in the generations to come.
1: The history of the Iranian church is an illustration of Isaiah 54 verse 17 which says no weapon that is formed against you shall prosper and in fact there were five strategies that the government, the Iranian government have used to try and suppress the Christian church And every one of them has only acted to increase that church. The first thing they did was to ban the Bible. So they banned printing any um, Persian uh, language uh, versions of the Bible. Secondly, they burnt all the Bibles they could find. Um, And thirdly, they forbade the reading of the Bible. And they were stupid enough to put on a government minister on television who waved a copy of a New Testament and said, anybody caught reading this will be in big trouble. Well, there was an incredible surge of demand for this New Testament as a result of that. And then secondly, they decided to um, kill the pastors. It says there that it had a picture of seven. On the board outside, there's an eighth that's been killed since 1996. But of course, all of those martyrs just made people think, what is it that makes this, this um, teaching so special that people are prepared to die for it. And then they decided to send people to prison. They've sent many thousands of Iranian Christians to prison, and that has had exactly the same effect, not only to make people curious as to why they're suffering, but also has impassioned existing believers to be more fervent and more courageous, to follow the example of those martyrs. And those prisoners. And then lastly, they decided that they would um, close all the churches. And I think last time uh, I I spoke about how that happened, particularly on a a Christmas um, recently, where they raided 90 churches across Iran. But of course, all that did was drive the churches underground, so that believers were just gathering gathering their neighbours and relatives in their own houses, and the church has grown exponentially since. So God is glorified. But it has been at a tremendous cost. Um, I just want to read a quote from an Iranian um, believer. He says, We glorify God for how he is accomplishing his sovereign purposes in Iran, yet persecution remains deeply painful. Lives have been lost, homes, businesses and inheritances stolen, families torn apart. Some will carry the physical and emotional scars of suffering for the rest of their lives. But we won't shrink back. As the Apostle declares, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Bibles cost money, so please do um, give to the collection for Elam this month to fund that incredible thirst for Bibles. It'll be the biggest return on investment that this world could offer. Thank you.
4: Mm.
0: Thank you, Paul. There's a lot to uh, think about and to pray about there, isn't there? I always find it... um, challenging when I I read about these countries that are being persecuted and people that are being martyred and I've read on many occasions where we're supposed to be praying for them yet they're praying for us here because we're we're so well off here aren't we and we're so sleepy in our faith they're actually praying for us to be more faithful more prayerful and I think it'd be a good time now like we have a time of prayer together Um, let's not be sleepy these are brothers and sisters in Christ it's no different than me talking to you sitting in these pews here is it and praying to you over your different matters these are brothers and sisters in Christ that have serious problems are persecuted and need the prayers and those prayers are answered so it'd be good to have maybe three or four short prayers and then I'll, I'll close in prayer afterwards
3: we thank you that your people in Iran know what it is to trust you, to pray to you oh Lord we, we ask that the hunger for your word will continue we pray that you will give them more of your word, more understanding of your word more love for you more confidence in you. Oh Lord, we thank you for what you've poured out from them. Are oh, we long for more of that for ourselves? And thank you that we can Father, well, such a wonderful show of your uh, your control over these the situations. As we've heard about how, uh, with every act of the government to <coughs> uh, squash the church in Iran, with every act they've taken, it has strengthened them. It has built them up, and through the sacrifice, um, you have. Pray that, um, as unlikely as it may be, um, that you will change the hearts of those in power. And you are probably something that seems impossible, but we know that you are a God who whom do all things. Are possible. We really pray that um, you will change that situation. <coughs> that there will be a realization in that country that um, the teaching.
0: before you now and we thank you so much that you are a god that is in control of that situation in iran and not just iran across the world lord there are many brothers and sisters in christ that are being persecuted even as we speak yet they show such great faith lord it's something that we could really have more of can we the way that they show their faith even in the darkest of times in their lives lord they shine that light for jesus christ and we just pray lord god that you would be with them that you would help them through their persecution, that you would help them to really shine brightly in that dark, dark world, Lord. And we pray that that many more will be brought to know Christ. Lord, we pray for these Bibles that there is a collection for. We pray that that many will be given out and lives would be changed through that. Lord, we just pray that you would help us to pray constantly for our brothers and sisters um, far and wide. Help us to pray continually for for, uh, them to be delivered from their oppressors. Help us to pray for them to help bring others to know Jesus Christ. We pray. Lord, we just pray for, for so many around the world and it's just so wonderful to see the church growing day by day. Lord, we know that you are a God who can do marvellous things. We, we look back at what we've just been reading in Judges and how the people rebelled, yet you delivered them from the greatest of enemies, Lord. And Lord, you can do that today. You can deliver these Christians from their persecutors. Lord, we thank you so much that, that these um, persecuted churches have a great hope. Their hope is in you, and they know that they will be with you in heaven for eternity, which is far better. They might have to suffer here for a little while, but for eternity they will have joy and they will have peace. Lord, I do, do pray now that you'd be with us as we, we come to hear from what Mark has to teach us from the Bible now, Lord. We pray that you'd really help us to sit and listen, to understand and we especially pray that you'd help Mark as he takes us through these passages. Lord, may we be filled with your Holy Spirit as Mark guides us through them. May we take it on board. And Lord, may it be a blessing to each and every single one of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing our second song now and then Mark is going to come up and he's going to be preaching to us. And after Mark's preach, we are going to be singing two more songs after that. So I've not made a mistake with this being the second one now. Um, there will be two songs that are after the, the after Mark's preached. So our second song um, we're going to be singing, and I think this is one that we can really be singing with our brothers and sisters across the persecuted Church, and it's Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus. And this can be a prayer for us, for them, isn't it? To stand up for Jesus.
5: to grow the church and the different areas that the church is involved with and you have this passion for Crober to be transformed by the gospel. It's a good passion to have. And you get granted this special opportunity like never seen before to put in a request for whatever resources you might need. So you get your notebook out and you start jotting things down. What are you going to write on your list? I'm going to give you a few moments to think about it. You want the church to grow? You want Crowborough to know the gospel? What resources are you going to be writing down? You can ask for anything. What do you want? got a couple of ideas in your head. Well, I'm super grateful, as uh, many of us are, to God for all of you, especially for those who give so much, your free time in service to God and to the church here. But imagine if we had, suddenly got given, another 30 Christians, 30 Christians who really want to serve, who've got loads of time on their hands. Imagine if we could just finally ask for Christians to be sort of parachuted in. Imagine how many more events we could run. Imagine the things we could do. You uh, you jot down a budget for your, your mission and it, it's basically unlimited. It's essentially, you know, go what you want. So you've got the funds to get the latest tech. You do these uh, amazing media productions for the town to see. You hire a pizza oven uh, on a van and uh, you use it for the huge evangelistic event that we have up, up in Goldsmiths Field. And... Um, You buy hundreds of Bibles, hundreds of books and resources so that people can read and understand more of of the gospel, what we're all on about. You hire in the top evangelists in the country, that's the next thing on your list. Top evangelists, you get them in and you put everyone in the church through some intensive training programs that covers everything under the sun so that every member is fully equipped to serve the church. Or perhaps you had other things on your list that I haven't mentioned. I have to confess, as a church leader, some of those things quite appeal to me. Be quite nice to have. Imagine what we could do if we were resourced in that way. So often we think, if we were strengthened in some way, imagine what we could do. Imagine, imagine the good that God could do through us if only we were strengthened in, in that particular way. But you know, if we're going to be useful in God's kingdom... It may be that we don't need to be strengthened. It may be that actually we need to be weakened. Tonight we're going to see how we can make sense of that as we look at Judges 7. God's people in Judges 7 are not having a good time. It's their own fault. God was judging them for their evil in their lives. But to say life was tough for them was a a big understatement. God's handed them over to the Midianites. The Midianites were some camel riding marauders that would just sweep through the land and they were described as locusts and it was partly because there were so many of them and partly because they just decimated the land just wherever they went they took the crops they killed the livestock or took the livestock with them anything they could get their hands off they just they just took and so God's people the Israelites are basically being forced into hiding and so they've gone into the mountains they've gone into the hills and they're living in dens and shelters and caves And it's just a miserable existence. They spend their entire existence in fear, really, struggling to survive. Year after year, the Midianites just come in and plunder all their foods. Just try and imagine how um, worrying and stressful and demoralising that would be to be an Israelite at that time. After seven long years, they finally cry out to God. It takes them too long But eventually they cry out to God. And the first thing God does is he sends them a prophet. And the prophet says to them about God, he says, remember who rescued you. God says, remember it was me that rescued you. And realise that you're in this situation because you've done wrong. You've not obeyed me. But then after that, God then calls out a man to lead uh, an attack against the Midianites. Gideon. But Gideon's not exactly brimming with confidence at the idea of taking on the Midianites. This is what he says back in uh, chapter 6, verse 15. Gideon says, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. He says, you've got the wrong guy, Lord. You want the strongest of the strong, I'm the weakest of the weak. In chapter 6, we see an uncertain, weak, fearful Gideon, and he's needing reassurances from God. We also see that with God's help, he's able to muster 32,000 men to come and fight. It's a much smaller group than Gideon would like, but it's it's something. And then we get to chapter seven. It says, "Then Gideon and all the people who were with him, 32,000 of them, rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harod, and the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh and the valley." Well, imagine if Gideon had been given a notebook at this point to write down all his special requests that he could ask for. I know some of the things that he would write. More men. Thousands and thousands and thousands more men. Better equipped men. Men with proper weapons. Trained men. Proper soldiers. People who were experienced at war because the army he had were not experienced at war and didn't have good equipment. And they were probably weak and Malnourished. And I suspect he would have written down a replacement leader as well. He wasn't feeling too keen on the whole idea of being God's chosen leader. He could do with some serious strengthening at a time like this. And yet, what does God do? He weakens him. And so I want us to see, firstly, weakening for God. Weakening for God. And this is verses 1 to 8. In verse 2. The Lord says to Gideon, he says, you can't go to war yet, there's too many people. And you know, finally, God's realised quite how big this Midianite army is. But no, that's not what God's saying. If you read it carefully, you realise that God isn't saying to Gideon, they've got too many people. God's saying to Gideon, you've got too many people. Your army is too big. Verse 2 is, is key to helping us understand what this chapter is saying. So verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. You see, at this point, the chances of Gideon winning is kind of slim to zero. But there is a chance. And it's as if God can see the headlines in the newspapers the next day, if he helps them win. And what God realises is that those headlines won't include him in it. So it would be headlines like, Israelites stun Midianites. Israelites overcome all odds to defeat the Midianites. Heroic Israelites triumph over Midianites. They're just some of the headlines that you see. But what you notice is that God isn't mentioned in any of them. You see, God knows that by nature the Israelites are far too good at taking the credit for themselves. They're far too good at taking the glory. You know, it's a sad reflection on us as humans that too often we take the credit for things when it doesn't belong to us, it belongs to God. We can pray, can't we, when we really need God's help and we pray and we pray and then God gives us help and so quickly what do we do? We think about how well we did in that situation or how well we solved whatever the problem was. We can be so quick to give ourselves the credit. God is going to give his people victory over the Midianites but he is going to get the credit rightly. He is going to make it very clear that he is the one that gives the victory. It is going to be undeniably God at work. He's going to make it so that he is undeniably working. This is what God says in verse 3. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. As part of uh, God's rules, back in Deuteronomy, that if people were fearful and trembling, they could leave the army. But you can imagine sort of Gideon crossing his fingers as he sort of announces this, hoping that you know maybe four or five will sort of you know head off. Twenty-two thousand of them head home. Twenty-two thousand, only ten thousand remain. So over two-thirds of his army go home, trembling. And just picture this for a minute. I've been trying to picture this this week, and I've been, as I've been sort of preparing. 22,000 men getting their belongings and, and walking off into the distance and, and Gideon's just left behind and just as Gideon's beginning to panic about how few men he's got left the Lord says to Gideon the people are still too many you can imagine Gideon gulping still? still too many? God gives another test. He says, take the men down to the water. If they kneel to drink, send them home. If they kind of scoop up the water and lap it like a dog, those are the ones to stay. We're not told exactly why God chose to split it this way. doesn't matter a huge amount. That's just how God chose to to split it. Those who kneel will be going home. Those who don't will stay You can imagine Gideon hearing this instruction and just desperately hoping that no one kneels down. Please don't kneel, please don't kneel. And then he just looks around and despairs at the sight of nearly every single person kneeling down to drink. The number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths was 300 men. But all the rest of the people, 9,700 of them, knelt down to drink water. Gideon's army is now 300 men, 32,000 to 300. He's just lost 94% of his army and uh, he's now going into a battle where the odds are at least 400 to 1 against. The chance of Israel winning this battle has plummeted from slim to zero to absolutely impossible. And that's just how God wants it. That's just how God wants it. He says to the, the fearful Gideon, who now has 300 men, he says, now I will give the Midianites into your hand. Now I'll give them into your hand. And the victory will be undeniably God's. The victory will be undeniably God's. What is the lesson for us here? Is that God's power is best displayed in our weakness. God's power is best displayed in our weakness. We don't like to be weak, do we? If you're anything like me, we do what we can to be strong. We take the credit for success in our lives. And God has to weaken us in our lives before we can serve him. Before he works in us and through us, he has to weaken us. Sometimes God brings us to our knees so that we realise that the only way we can achieve things is through his power. And this starts right at the start of the Christian life. Right at the start of the Christian life is where God breaks us down to the point of realising that we cannot be good enough for God. To realise that we are broken, to realise that we need him. However hard we try, we cannot be good enough for him. It features in some of your testimonies that point of being broken, crying out to God to save you. And as we reach that broken state, as we cry out to God, that is when he is glorified. Because he's the only one that can make us good enough through the blood of Jesus. He's the only one that can give us life because he died and rose again on the cross. You see, as we come to him seeking eternal life, We glorify him because his power is displayed in the cross. As we see and we feel more of our brokenness, more of our weakness, we glorify him more and more as he works in and through us. We see more of his glory and grace. But that pattern should continue through our Christian lives. It shouldn't change. It's not like we suddenly get strong afterwards. We need to continue in our weakness. Trusting in God, seeking his help, giving him the credit. You know, in your Christian life, some of you may have issues that frustrate you. Weaknesses in your life, or at least perceived weaknesses in your life. Things that you feel are stopping you achieving things for God. You feel like, if I didn't have this issue in my life, I could do so much more for God. So it might be a physical issue with your body. Maybe it's an injury. Or maybe it's getting older. You're not as mobile as you'd like to be. And you'd love to volunteer like you have done for so many years. But it's just not practical anymore. You can't get out like you used to be able to. And you feel weak. You think, if only I could could get out again, then God could use me. Or maybe you have mental health issues. And it restricts what you can do, what you feel able to take on. I wish I wish I didn't have that. It frustrates you. Or maybe your work and responsibilities are hectic at the moment. You've got family responsibilities as well, and life's just hectic. And you think I'd I'd love to have more free time to serve. If I could do that, then God could use me so much more. And you feel weak because of it. Or maybe you feel a, a lack of resources. I think if only we had those 30 Christians parachuted in oh, imagine, how, imagine how much more we could do for God that would solve things maybe for some reason your confidence has been hit in the last year or so and, and it's hit you hard and you just don't feel like you can be as useful to God anymore you're saying I'm not, I'm not much good anymore Maybe this last year, for whatever reason, it's just been really tough. And it's just been a battle and you've just been focusing on trying to get through it. Getting to the end with God's help is about all you can do. I'd love to be able to do more. You feel weak. Maybe you've lost something that was very important to you. It's been taken away. Could it be that God is stripping away some of these things so that we rely on him more than ourselves more than anything else to bring us to a situation where we realize that the only thing that we can rely on the only thing that can help is God could it be that rather than limiting what we can do for the kingdom of God God may actually be using these weaknesses to more clearly and more powerfully show his work in and through you. Let me say that again because I think it's worth thinking about. Could it be that rather than limiting what we can do for the kingdom of God, God may actually be using our weaknesses to more clearly and more powerfully show his work in and through you? You may remember uh, Paul talked about the thorn in the flesh. don't know exactly what it was, but it was something that he suffered with, something that he struggled with. He begged that God would take it away from him. It felt like it made him weak. You think, surely it makes so much sense for God to, to take this thorn away. This is kind of God's chief missionary. Like, take out the thorn. Imagine how much more helpful he could be if he didn't have the thorn in the flesh that made him suffer, that made him struggle in some way, that made him feel weak. Take it away, God. And yet what does God do? God leaves it there. Why? He says, I'm doing this so that my power will be most, most clearly revealed in your weakness. See, God says, no, no, you, you may be amazing by yourself, but I'm going to leave it with you so that when you, when you do preach the gospel and when people believe and when the kingdom grows, people will know it's down to me and it's not down to just you, Paul. You know, one of the most common things that people say when I ask them to be a camp leader is something along the lines of, I just feel very inadequate. I say, good. Because that is fertile ground for God to work on. Fertile ground for God to best display his power in. You know, sometimes we can be keen to serve God, but we put up barriers ourselves because we we feel insufficient to do it. We feel inadequate. We think there's better people to do it than us. We feel too weak for whatever it is. We need to understand that with God, often these feelings of of weakness and inadequacy are not barriers, but necessities. Not barriers, but necessities. Of course, there there are some roles where we might need some more training for. There are some roles that it might not be suitable for us for. But often there are roles that we can do. We feel inadequate, but what we need to do is come to God in our inadequacy and say God I need you to help me with this you know Gideon was weakened significantly and he was already the weakest of the weakest but he was weakened so that we can see that it is undeniably God at work in his life and in what we see in a few minutes so we see Gideon being weakened for God but we also see strengthening for Gideon, strengthening for Gideon, we're going to see now just briefly, really, that God is caring and compassionate. He knows our frame; he knows we are dust. In chapter six, uh, God has shown Gideon uh, miracles. He's done the whole fleece thing, where he's uh, reversed it as well. So he's, he's done a miracle twice, both ways, to um, to show he's God, to give him a sign. So Gideon's seen this. If you're not sure what I'm talking about, look at it at the end of chapter 6. It should be enough. And yet God in his kindness, he comes to Gideon and he says this. He says, go down, he says, to, to, uh, to the Midianites. But, but if you are afraid, he says, first, go down to the camp with Pura your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your, hand, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Well, Gideon is still afraid. So he does what God says. He goes down uh, to the outposts of the Midianite army. And I find verse 12 almost comical, really. The author's really driving home the size of the, the Midianite army. Listen to this. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance you can imagine Gideon walking down there and thinking well this is hardly helping Lord I don't feel strengthened yet but what does he hear Well, he's outside a tent and he hears two people chatting and one of them's had a dream and this loaf of barley has rolled down the hill and it's, it's crushed this man's tent in his dream definitely falls into the strange category of dreams But we find out it's more than just a a dream. And miraculously, the comrade that he's with, that he shares it with, understands what's going on. And he says, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. So Gideon hears this and now he is strengthened. He's still got to go and fight. God doesn't let him off what he's got to go and do. He still has to obey, but he strengthens. I don't know about you, but I find it quite helpful to remember that Gideon wasn't a fearless warrior, the sort of guy that's just up for anything, doesn't feel emotions. He just, yeah, I'll do whatever. Gideon wasn't like that. I find that helpful. I can relate to him. God understands his fears. God understands my fears. God understands your fears. And he strengthens us in our weakness. He strengthens us in our weakness. Like Gideon, we have God's promises. In fact, we've got so many more promises and examples of God completing his promises. We've got so much. In some ways, we've got enough. And yet, so often God strengthens us, doesn't he? If you're a Christian... And you have been for a while, I'm sure you've got experience of this, where you've known God's um, strengthening when you felt weak. Where God's specifically strengthened you through something. It may be that there's been a particular verse that that God's put on your heart that's just helped you, that's been a blessing to you. It may be the wise counsel of a friend that's just supported you in that moment and given you what you need to hear and it is God speaking through your friend. It may be that in some sort of strange way the very challenge that you are facing has provided some encouragement and strength for you like Gideon had. I I think that's probably quite a great conversation topic actually either for tonight or for, for later this week. Chat to older Christians or mature Christians and ask them how has God specifically strengthened you in times of weakness? How has God specifically strengthened you in times of weakness I think that would be a really useful and interesting conversation I want us to notice two quick things from verse 15 firstly as soon as he he hears the interpretation of the dream what does he do he worships straight away he worships that's his first response secondly what does he do he's stirred into action he worships and then he's stirred into action his strengthening in God leads to worship then action Let's pray that God will do that for us. As we're strengthened tonight by his word, let's pray that it will lead us to worship and then to action. And then finally and briefly, conquering for both God and Gideon. Conquering for both God and Gideon. Verses 16 to 22. So Gideon goes to war against an army too many to count with 300 men some trumpets, some empty jars, and some flaming torches. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon! Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army and the army fled. The victory is undeniably God's. All they do is stand there and God works. but he has used Gideon's obedience. And because of that, Gideon is able to share in the victory. Now, I'm very thankful to say that at the end of tonight, I'm not going to say to all of you, Arise! We're going to go and fight the Midianites. Thankfully, that is not our issue today. We don't have an army to fight. But we do have a saviour to follow. And we do have a mission to complete. We're called to obey Jesus. We're called to be the body of Jesus on earth and we're called to make disciples of all nations to share the good news of Jesus. You know, it's something that the Gideons have done, Gideons International. You may have seen these Bibles. They're in hotels and hospitals and all sorts of places. They give them out in schools as well. And on the front, they've got the symbol of the jar and the flame. And it's that symbol of trusting in God's power to do the work trusting in God's. so we go back to the start of the message tonight what do we need as we seek to live for Jesus as we seek to transform Cobra for the gospel for, the, for God what do we need to make Jesus known would we complain if we suddenly had all those Christian helpers or resources I don't think we probably would But what we really need, what we need as individuals and as a church, is a right sense of our weakness. We sang it in the last song, actually, about the limitations of our human power. We need to realise that more and more. We need to realise just how limited we are. However professional we get, however much hard work we put in, however great our teamwork is, however friendly we are, there are limitations to what we can do. But we, we need to understand our weakness. If not, maybe we need to pray that God will help us understand it but we also need a greater and greater sense of God's power, of what he can do in and through us as he lives in us in his spirit, as he works through us, as he worked through Gideon. As John the Baptist says, he must increase, I must decrease. I find uh, Paul's prayer for the Ephesians here really helpful. This is what Paul prays for them. He prays that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. See what Paul's praying there for for them? That they'll be strengthened, not in themselves, but they'll be strengthened in their inner being through the power of the Holy Spirit in us. And then he carries on later in verse 20, chapter 3, he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory. In the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. You see that God working in us for his purposes, for his glory. That's when God will work in us, when it's for his glory. When it's not about us, when it's for him, for his glory, in the church and in Christ through all generations. And just thinking about that far more abundantly, isn't that just what God's been doing in Iran. god God been doing far more abundantly what I imagine those first missionaries imagine God could do imagine if they could see what God was doing now how blessed they'd be well let's pray that God would do a work in our church, in our town, in our lives that is undeniably God at work so that others may see it and may praise him let's pray Father God, I pray that you would forgive us for when we do things in our own strength, for when we ignore you, for when we disobey you, for when we take the credit and the glory that belongs to you and place it on ourselves. Lord, we see how you weakened Gideon. And Lord, many of us in our lives have experienced the weakening that comes from you as we've come to that point where we've realised that you are the only one who can help, who can restore us, who can give us the power we need to live for you and to achieve things for your kingdom. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with your power, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Thank you that you promised to do that for all believers. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that your name may be lifted up, Lord, that we may decrease and that you may increase in this place, that all the glory may go to you. Your name may be lifted up, Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as John said, we're going to sing a couple of songs now. Uh, They both just link in well with the theme. So uh, when the music starts, let's stand and let's spend time singing and really thinking about what we're singing. By reading uh, a couple of, well, three verses from Hebrews 11. And what more should I say? For time uh, time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Amen.